You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. I'm Yasmina Boutalib, a health reporter here at The Post. My guests this morning are joining us from Philadelphia and right here in D.C. to help us understand how the pandemic has impacted local health equity efforts in their cities. We have Dr. Cheryl Bettigal, Commissioner of the Philadelphia Department of Health, and Dr. Laquandra Nesbitt, Director of the D.C. Department of Health. Thank you both so much for joining me today and in person. Dr. Bettigal, last week, President Biden recognized the grim milestone of one million deaths in the United States due to the coronavirus pandemic. The White House hosted a second COVID summit to renew calls for Congress to strike a deal on a relief package. To start, I'd like you to set the scene for us and tell us how the pandemic has impacted your local health efforts and just impacted the city of Philadelphia. You know, it's, it's huge and it feels like a very heavy question to answer. Uh, Philadelphia has lost more than 5,000 residents. And, you know, it's not been, as, as is true everywhere, it's not been an equal burden. So we've lost most heavily among our seniors, but among racial and ethnic groups, most heavily among our black and Latino residents. And I think in the beginning of the pandemic, as that was happening and as we were struggling to understand how to fight it, I think that there were a lot of moments when we lost trust with communities. And you know, some of that is, is our own missteps and some of that is um, when resources are short, it turns out that the, the structures of power reproduce themselves. So in the, in the course of the last, Two years, especially you know, over the the I, you know since since we've recognized that that pattern, um, there's been a huge effort to figure out how to address that and to really partner with community organizations. And I think as we think about what's worked from this and the lessons we want to take forward from that, that to me is the most powerful. Dr. Nesbitt, I want you to talk to us about how the pandemic has helped to highlight some of the disparities that already existed. And of course, these aren't new, but it did exacerbate existing disparities all over the country. Do you think the pandemic has helped in any way to bring more attention to some of these disparities and has it directed more resources to help address them? Sure. Uh, you know, we've been very focused for a long time uh, in the District of Columbia on eliminating disparities and more importantly, framing it in the context of achieving health equity, which is fundamentally giving all of our residents the opportunity to achieve their optimal health uh, and making sure that our conversations expand around uh, addressing some of those very social and structural uh, issues that impede individuals' ability to live a healthy life uh, and get access to the resources that they need. And fundamentally, what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic is that when our cases began to shift uh, disproportionately to our communities of color, uh, our black and brown residents in the District of Columbia, it was really those individuals who had an increased risk of exposure, uh, those persons who could not uh, stay home uh, during um, the beginning of the pandemic, whose work was on the front lines, uh, individuals whose jobs required them to be giving direct services in healthcare and clinical care in our long-term care facilities, uh, our bus drivers, our grocery workers, um, those folks who we were able to call on the phone and have things delivered to us, but they were the people delivering those services. 
Uh, and that really contextualized for a lot of folks uh, what that meant in terms of their risk for some other health conditions. And so, you know, now fundamentally, when we're not only looking at um, that 75% of our deaths to COVID happened in our black residents, when we look at those other uh, preventable causes of death that have increased over the past two years and noticing that they have also disproportionately increased amongst our black and brown residents. It's putting a different context and a different tone to the conversation about achieving health equity. Dr. Bettigol, it was announced last month that the city of Philadelphia would join the growing list of G20 countries to take on COVID vaccine equity. Why was this an important issue for your health department to engage with? So, you know, as we've watched inequity in Philadelphia, we're also very conscious of what's happening worldwide. And this pattern of the haves and the have-nots reproducing itself feels very personal in Philadelphia. And then just the understanding that these new variants that we're seeing are happening in places where people are largely unvaccinated. And that includes much of the world still. And that unless we as, the, as a country are part of solving that problem, we aren't going to get to a solution. We'll just keep going through the cycle. I keep feeling like there's this cosmic lesson that we are attempting to be, caught, to, to be taught, and we are failing to learn it again and again. So we needed to be part of that effort. I want to ask both of you, COVID cases are, of course, on the rise again um, in much of the country and have been for a couple of weeks. The city of Philadelphia imposed a mask mandate and then sort of rescinded it. Uh, for both of you, under what circumstances do you think a mask mandate should be put back in place in your cities? I can start if you want. <laughs> no, it, you know, it's a very fair question. Um, you know, the evidence is very clear. Masks work. Uh, and they prevent the spread and transmission of, of COVID-19 and other respiratory infections. Um, we've learned a lot. Uh, throughout the pandemic, we now have a new framework in this phase of the pandemic in which we're in. And many of our jurisdictions have adopted that framework of looking at community levels, uh, when community levels are low, when they're medium, and when they're high. Uh, and some of our jurisdictions are in very different places, low, medium, and high. Uh, and we also recognize that there are individuals um, who will have their own risks, right? So there's individual risks and community level risks um, that should be taken into consideration. So regardless of what your community levels are, uh, so individuals will need to make choices based on their own health. So they may always be at increased risk of severe illness if they contract COVID, or they may live with someone who's at increased risk. They're immunocompromised, they have cancer, and are undergoing chemotherapy, et cetera. Uh, so we fundamentally, you know, believe in the District of Columbia that, you know, when we're at low and medium uh, risk, we really want people to be looking at their individual risk. Uh, and when we're at high risk, we, you know, we will have maybe a consideration of a different posture uh, for that indoor use of um, indoor use of masking. Uh, but our recommendation is always very clear. Um, anyone could wear a mask. Uh, whenever they deem that it's necessary for their own individual risk, their family risk. And many of our institutions um, have kept indoor mask policies uh, throughout the pandemic because that's what's best uh, for their population that they serve. Many of our entertainment venues, many of our workplaces and businesses have done that uh, throughout the pandemic. And when they've seen a cluster, uh, for example, in their universities and campuses, they've reinstituted their mask policies. And so we've really had this whole of government, whole of community approach uh, for the past two and a half years, and that's worked really well for our jurisdiction. So, and in Philly, you know, it's been interesting. We have had a mask mandate for long stretches of the pandemic, and Philadelphia has actually been, 
I think, the city with the highest rate of mask use, maybe because it's not terribly politicized in the city or hasn't been. Um, when we were watching what was happening with, uh, with BA2 happening in Europe, seeing you know, sharp rates of increase in cases, sharp rates of increase in hospitalizations, especially in the UK, we typically follow UK. So you know, we kind of signaled, I kind of signaled that the mask mandate might be coming April 4th. We announced it on the 11th to start enforcement on the 18th. By the 21st, we were already seeing cases leveling out, starting to drop, hospitalizations dropping. And at that point, it became clear that people had started the masking well before the mandate, because you know, it doesn't take three days to impact your case rate. I've always said we want to be the least restrictive necessary. And since the mandate piece didn't seem to be necessary, we skipped the mandate and just kept the strong recommendation. About a week ago, you know, again announced that we were seeing cases rise and strongly recommended masking. And we are already seeing masking pick up in the city. So I don't want to mandate if we don't need a mandate. I do want to make sure people have the information they need. One of the things our EPIs have, have noticed as we look at data throughout the pandemic is that the rate of rise early on in case numbers, regardless of what the numbers are, but the rate of rise can be predictive of a new wave. And so that's something we want to alert people to because you know hospitalizations are two to three weeks later. So if we wait to tell people if, that something is happening until there's a lot of people in the hospital, we will have missed our chance to prevent things. So you know, that's kind of our, our theory right now. We're watching things. And of course, I, I've learned never to say never in this pandemic. Dr. Nesbitt, can you talk to us about the local perspective on this issue? How does health equity among American cities help to move the needle towards a healthier future? Oh, well, I mean, it's, to me, it's rather simple. Um, if, if we don't improve the health status of um, the people in our community, in our society, in our country, uh, and globally who are having the poorest outcomes, we can't improve our overall health, uh, right, as a, as a nation, as a world. Uh, and so this conversation or uh, this goal of achieving health equity uh, should not fall to the responsibility of just one group of individuals. It shouldn't be just one, uh, the interest of a select uh, few. Um, so I, we really adopt this notion that health equity is everybody's business. Um, it's everyone's job, it's everyone's work. Uh, so I think it's critically important that when you're adopting population health frameworks, when you have uh, patient safety and quality initiatives, any community health initiative that you have has to be done through an equity lens. Um, it's not enough to achieve improved health outcomes for your city overall and still have wide disparity gaps, right? Um, and so we very clearly here in the District of Columbia not only look at whether or not our infant mortality rates have improved, or, for example, or whether or not we're improving cancer outcomes, but we look at whether or not we're improving the disparity gap or the uh, equity ratio. And, and I think that's critically important. If you're leaving people behind, you're really not making a difference in your overall population health. And I want to stay with you for a minute. What are some of the ways that DC is addressing the issues surrounding vaccine access and hesitancy? Sure. So we did um, we did a number of things. One of our first commitments and priority was we established a scientific advisory group 
uh, that was focused on us having an uh, implementation of an equitable program uh, focused around equitable access. And that helped us think through as we were rolling out our program uh, and the scientific advisory committee still exists because we don't consider ourselves finished uh, with rolling out a COVID-19 uh, vaccine program. And it was uh, a combination of uh, medical professionals, public health experts, community uh, experts and community leaders from the faith community, uh, some of our advisory neighborhood commissioners uh, were members of our uh, group as well. Um, the second thing we did was as our program was rolling out, we first opened our mass vaccination sites and our community access points in our communities that were experiencing the highest burden of COVID-19 outcomes. Now, what we saw with that was what a lot of other places in the U.S. saw is that people were willing to travel great distances to get access to COVID-19 vaccines. And so that did not lend itself immediately to, equ to equity, right? To parity of where our poor outcomes were happening to people getting immediate access to those vaccines. So we had to add another layer on top of that, which was prioritizing access through a scheduling system for the residents who actually lived in those neighborhoods. Because uh, we found just putting those vaccines in your community didn't mean that you would be the first people to get them. Uh, <laughs> uh, so okay. we had to kind of, you know, box people out. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, so that the folks who live next to those rec centers and senior centers uh, and pharmacies would actually be the ones um, to get it. And then we just started layering other things on by hearing feedback from folks. We created senior buddies programs. We did faith and vaccines initiatives with um, the faith-based community in our, in our city. Uh, we did in-home vaccinations where you could call us and we come to your home so that people who had um, challenges with if they were caregivers to seniors and couldn't leave the house or they had child care issues, we did everything we could to really make um, getting into neighborhoods uh, a priority for folks. Uh, and one of our biggest success stories that I'm really proud of is that we partnered with the uh, special constituency offices uh, that the mayor has and our mayor, uh, mayor's office of Latino affairs uh, did such a tremendous job that our uh, coverage for primary series is highest amongst our Latino population, such that when uh, the Delta wave occurred, we did not see high rates of infection amongst the Latino population in the same way we did with the first wave of COVID-19. And I think that that's such a remarkable example of how when you do those community partnerships, you have those right grassroots um, efforts, you're using trusted community messengers and community partnerships, you can actually achieve equity uh, and get the right message to populations who have been so uh, disproportionately impacted. That's a great story. It's nice to hear one that's inspiring and that we can learn from. Dr. Bettingol, I'd like to pivot to the idea of success stories, just building on what, what Dr. Nesbitt was talking about. What local solutions to vaccine inequity can you point to that are valuable lessons for the future? So I couldn't agree with Dr. Nesbitt more about the, the problem of like just geographic access not being enough. Um, there were several things that we learned. We heard from community members that we needed walk-in access, we needed extended hours, so you know, listening to those things were important. But the community partnerships, I agree, were, were key. And so many people, you know, I think Dr. Ellis Stanford's story and the Black Doctors Consortium, people know pretty widely from Philly. Um, and that was huge. Um, there are other stories that are less widely known, um, one of which, you know, we have a, a similar outcome with our, our Latino residents. There was a, a local reverend who was very persistent and convincing about the need for doses in the community. and and committed to helping. And 
one of his staff members actually went door to door, got a whole bunch of community leaders that she knew, they went door to door, literally signing people up for vaccine slots. You know, convincing them first to get vaccinated and then saying, okay, Tuesday at 10, you're coming down to our, you know, and they had the vaccines at their organization. And we reached a tipping point. Um, this was about April of 21 of, I think enough people in the Latino community knew somebody, a family member, a friend who had been vaccinated and was okay. And all of a sudden the rate shot up. And similarly, we, we are at, I think 95% of Latinos in Philly with one shot, 85% fully vaccinated. And in the Delta wave, you see that huge difference in the hospitalization rate and the death rate among Latinos. So those community groups, um, the partnerships, I can't say enough about how important they were in getting the work done. And that's just one little example. Dr. Nesbitt, what experiences or stories from DC do you think will have the greatest impact on the future functioning of the city's healthcare systems and approaches to other vaccines in the future? Sure, I, you know, for me, I have uh, really been committed to this notion of uh, what I call closing the chasm between public health and clinical medicine. Uh, and um, I find that a lot of conversations uh, that we have in this country uh, attempts to create a divide or create competition uh, between the public health community and our healthcare system about who gets more money and who's the favorite. Uh, and I think that um, what COVID gave us an opportunity to do was to really see how um, the talents uh, and the gifts and all of the qualities that one part of the system has really uh, benefits the other. Uh, and so the degree of collaboration and integration that public health and healthcare had throughout the COVID pandemic is really something I think we should take an opportunity to build on uh, and to recognize that there has to be strategic investments in both uh, systems in order for us to, um, to really serve our population in the best way. Uh, the technology and innovation that happens in healthcare uh, with innovation around therapeutics, with uh, what we learned about what was going well with the treatment of patients very early on in COVID. We really, on the public health and uh, governmental public health side, had to diffuse those concepts out into community to make sure people knew about those therapeutics, to make sure that our clinicians knew how to use those treatments. And then on the public health side, we really have a lot of responsibility for surveillance, for getting a lot of those things um, adopted and out into the community. And so just imagine if we took those same approaches to many of our chronic diseases, uh, if we took that same uh, approach to preventive uh, health uh, needs. And if we take that same attitude into the next emerging infections uh, that happen in our country, we'll be far better off uh, instead of taking this notion of being competitive or picking one uh, with over the other. Um, that's not how our system was designed. Um, we used to have many of our physicians who thought of themselves as doing public health work uh, and then now kind of see themselves as only being in the healthcare system. And uh, now we don't have many of our uh, healthcare clinicians who don't see themselves as having a role in public health. And I think um, we now have a philosophical shift with everyone uh, being able to recognize that they play a critical role in both. Well, you both talked a lot about vaccine efforts in your cities and, and how big a difference these outreach efforts made. So Dr. Bedingold, do you think that the national approach to vaccine access has been a coordinated effort? Or do you think that cities have been on their own to devise the best practices for distribution. You both talked about these success stories and I'm wondering if that's really knowing your city or if that's part of a broader national effort. I think it's both. I think we've all learned through this process. You know, I think 
there was a lot of focus on the federal level initially on these very large centralized vaccine distribution centers. And then we all kind of collectively learned from that that there were real access problems with doing that. Um, real access problems with the online schedulers, with places people needed to drive to, with just the competition for scheduling those slots. And, and we've changed, and, and the federal effort has changed with that too. I think the worry right now though is, you know, for the first time, at least in my memory, um, we said to everybody, regardless of who you are, where you're from, your insurance status, how much money you have, come. And if it's COVID, we'll treat you, we'll vaccinate you, we'll test you. And now we're not saying that anymore. And, you know, we're still, I mean, even if we stay at this low level of around 311 deaths a day, you know, it's more than 100,000 deaths a year. There's still a lot of COVID around. We're all still at risk. And we know that there are some groups among us who are more at risk than others. As we look at that federal effort, and you know, I know there are people arguing against this, but pulling back from people who don't have insurance. Uh, you know, what happens with Paxlovid access if you're uninsured? And, and what is that gonna do to the disparities that we are seeing? I, I feel like we are creating another huge disparity right now in this country that we need to be paying attention to because it is turning into resourced people will have access to not just vaccines, but very effective treatments and unresourced people will not. And that is really appalling. Well, we have just about two minutes left. So Dr. Nesbitt, I wanna end with you. Is there more that you think the federal government should be doing to help address ongoing health disparities that have been illuminated by the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. There's always more that can be done. Uh, and you know, I, I will say that there are some additional things that were done uh, during the pandemic that will continue to leverage. Uh, there's new funding that's been made available for us to uh, have more focused efforts around disparities, especially around uh, health literacy. And we've taken advantage of some of those initiatives uh, here in the District of Columbia that uh, really takes, um, look, takes a look at health literacy. We, I know we haven't talked much about that um, here, but that's been a huge part of the um, a, a big contributor, I should say, of one of the barriers to uh, vaccine equity uh, in our communities and uh, misinformation feeds into that. But also I think of health literacy um, in a much bigger and broader context in terms of how people even understand how to navigate systems. Uh, and when they don't have the ability to navigate systems, they tend to fall out of systems. Uh, so I think that there's a lot more that can be done uh, by the federal government to resource those types of initiatives. I also think that the federal government can do more um, to give states and large cities uh, latitude um, to make decisions that are best for their uh, jurisdictions, right? To not always be so prescriptive uh, because some of these um, solutions are gonna be homegrown. Uh, the other thing is that uh, I'm, I'm a huge data, data wonk I, and I believe in evidence-based initiatives, um, but so much of what needs to be done to achieve health equity is gonna to be told to us by the people that we need to serve. Uh, it's gonna be done, we're gonna learn
learn it by listening to people, by them informing the solutions and the interventions. And because of that, the evidence doesn't yet exist, right? There aren't a lot of research studies already out there. There aren't a lot of papers that are published. So if you're waiting to fund things that are evidence-based, we're gonna be waiting to fund things for quite some time. Uh, so I think we have to really adopt this notion of making federal investments into things that are promising practices or evidence-informed uh, to really uh, get off the bench and make a difference in people's lives. So I, I do think that there's more the federal government can do, but I wanna nod and acknowledge that uh, they have taken some uh, huge steps in recognizing um, health equity and making commitments to it with the task force and other efforts that are being done, uh, not only within um, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, because equity cuts across a host of other domains, um, but always more that can be done. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, but I want to thank you both so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good morning, everyone. I'm Elise Labitt from American University, and today we're talking about health inequities, particularly when it comes to mothers and babies. Now, America is facing a crisis related to maternal and infant health. Pregnancy-related death has more than doubled over the last 30 years, with more than 700 women dying every year in the U.S. Just to set the scene and, and put that into numbers, that's one woman dying every 12 hours from pregnancy-related causes. And black women are three times more likely to die than white women. Now, the March of Dimes and Merck are partnering to combat this crisis and to talk about how health inequities have brought these two organizations together to level the playing field for moms and their infants. I'm joined by Dr. Jakiba Henderson. She's the Senior Vice President and Interim Chief Medical and Health Officer at March of Dimes. And Jackie Caglia, she's the Director of Learning, Communications, and U.S. Programs at Merck for Mothers. It's great to have you, ladies. Um, Jakiba, let's start with you. I mean, we're looking at this health crisis right now, but we also read the headlines. We have this, this crisis on um, baby formula. And so we'd be you know, remiss if we didn't kind of acknowledge that this crisis you know, is also one of inequity. And, and you know, underserved communities, black mothers are finding it even harder to find this formula right now. Yes, and this issue, I think one of the things that's important is shining the light on the importance of mom and baby health. Often moms and infants, some of the most vulnerable in our, our country, are often forgotten. And I think this infant formula crisis helps remind us that really moms and babies are, are very important. And um, we, we feel very deeply about how families are struggling, looking for formula, looking for ways to feed their baby. And we continue to try to advise families to remember, even this, despite this crisis, it's important to remember that there are things that you should do to help make sure your babies are getting the best nutrition, things that you should avoid to make sure you're keeping your baby safe. Uh, we're continuing to remind families not to do dilute formula, um, not to use formula from unknown sources. Um, we're also, you know, continuing to encourage breastfeeding. And for families that can't breastfeed, that there are sources that they can obtain human milk if they're interested in um, getting human milk from uh, Human Milk um, Bank of America 
Human Milk Association, excuse me, Human Milk Banks Association of North America approved milk banks and uh, making sure that we pay attention to what's happening and being able to increase supplies um, for formula for families that are unable to breastfeed. Yeah, um, it's, it's a real gut check. Um, now, neither of you are strangers to health inequities across the board. Let's talk a little bit more broadly about the crisis related to maternal health. You do an annual report card at March of Dimes. Let's talk about what that data shows when it comes to health of mothers and their children and racial disparities. You, you, you brought up a very important point earlier talking about how the deaths among women in this country due to pregnancy-related causes is unequal. Um, unfortunately, our country is one of the worst countries, uh, industrialized nations Crazy. in terms of outcomes for moms and babies. Um, we continue to fall at the bottom of this, the pack of industrialized nations for, for maternal health. Um, and we spend more per capita on health care, so that's so unfortunate. Um, you mentioned the three times um, that black women are three times more likely to die, but that's only our national numbers. In some places in our country, it's so much worse. Um, as you mentioned, our March of Dimes report card we release every year gives grades to our country and to each state on how they're doing for preterm birth and also provides additional information on other maternal and infant health indicators and policies that impact moms and babies. And our country has a grade of a C minus. Um, if your child came home with a report card with a C minus, would that be something that you would be happy to see? Um, and in Nobody some here, of our I states think. in our country have a, have a grade of an F. And unfortunately, um, still one in 10 babies are born too soon in this country. And although we saw a slight decrease in preterm births over the past year from a rate of 10.2 to 10.1, the decreases were not equal. And we talk about inequities, uh, black and Hispanic, excuse me, black women and American Indian and Alaskan Native women are 60% more likely to have a preterm birth in addition to the inequities around maternal death. So this is a continuing pers persistent problem. We've had increases in maternal deaths doubled over the past 30 years and had persistent disparities over that time period. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, get, you grade the country a C minus, Let's just break that quickly down a little bit regionally. Like, what do the numbers tell you about how, you know, this is impacting communities? It's a story about people, really. It's, it's definitely impacting communities. And it's, it's when we look at the breakdown across, you know, states and communities, there are definitely differences. There are some states in our country that have a grade of a B, and then there are others with an F. Um, a most recent report um, just released about a month ago looking at maternal deaths right here in Washington, D.C., showed that out of the maternal deaths in Washington, D.C., 90% were to black mothers in this area. And that is so unfortunate. And then when we look at specific communities, 70 to 80% of those deaths were in just two um, areas in Ward 7 and 8 in D.C. So there are in clear inequities, not just by race and ethnicity, but there are differences across the country um, due to where you live. Um, we also look at access to care and issues around maternal health. We have a maternity care deserts report um, that we release um, every other year. And in our most recent report, we saw an increase in the amount of counties that do not have access, where you can't find an obstetrical maternity care provider. Um, there are more than 50% of counties in our country where there is no obstetrical maternity care or very limited care. And there are seven million 
women of reproductive age that live in these areas. So we're in dire straits in terms of not just looking at the outcomes, but for moms to even have access to a place where they can get the best care possible for their pregnancy. Yeah, I encourage everybody to check out that report card because these statistics are very sobering. Jackie, many folks in our audience are familiar with the Merck for Mothers program. That's your country's $650 million initiative to ensure no woman has to die while giving birth. Um, talk to us about how this collaboration advances the equity issue. Sure, thanks for the question, Elise. Um, and you use the word collaboration, and that's one of our core principles. And it's a little bit beyond collaboration and really about co-creation and getting as close as we can, as proximate as we can to the people who are experiencing the challenge. And so building on some of the data that Dr. Henderson shared, we also know that 60% of the deaths across our country are preventable. And we know that two thirds of those are happening in the postnatal period. And so that points us in the direction of needing to learn more about what's happening across the country related to postnatal support and what more can we be doing to support that. To link it into the conversation we're having earlier related to health equity and vaccine equity, at the start of the pandemic, uh, we heard from a lot of people who were pregnant that they were scared and they were afraid and they weren't sure if they should deliver in healthcare facilities. They weren't sure uh, about the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines. And we knew that they needed to hear from a trusted voice. And so talking about collaboration, we went directly to the March of Dimes and we formed a partnership to be able to offer a series of live webinars um, where the March of Dimes team was able to bring together experts to speak directly to people who were pregnant, to speak directly to people who were trying to access care during that time uh, and answer their questions. And thousands of people across the country joined these webinars. People actually still watch them today, um, those webinars back from 2020. And something else important that I wanna mention related to that is that was also around the time where we had a confluence of events happening across the country. And there were a series of significant things that happened that elevated a bit more in our collective consciousness systemic racism that exists across the country. And I really wanna commend the March of Dimes team because you can't talk about maternal health and maternal health equity without talking about the racial disparities that exist in outcomes across the country. And they bravely and authentically waded into that conversation and wove it into the webinars as well. And we had some hard conversations and we got some tough questions, but we showed up in a way that got people the information that they needed at the, a very important time to better access, access healthcare services. Yeah, Jakiba, these type of partnerships, working with healthcare companies, obviously are critical. Um, just list for us a couple of other things that you think are really solutions, you know, here that we can we can hold on to. I know bias training is one of them. Um, what else is going to make a difference here? Well, first of all, I, I think it's really important that we listen to mothers and listen to families and truly understand what they need and what they're going through. Um, for example, um, we know that there are some mothers that that present with certain issues or problems and they're not heard, they're not listened to. Um, and the other issues around bias you mentioned, when during in the healthcare setting, we know that there are systemic issues with how patients are treated differently um, based on race, based on their socioeconomics or where they're from. And we are working very hard to help 
eliminate and tackle some of those biases through our um, awareness to action, implicit bias training for maternity health care, infant health care providers, and those that take care of these patients. It's so important for us to recognize that we all have biases. We, we bring our, our, our history of our lives with us into our work, and the way we engage with the patients are impacted by these biases. And it's so important to help tackle these um, disparities by first recognizing that and finding having strategies to be able to counteract those biases and make sure that every patient gets the most respectful care when they come into the healthcare setting. Let's change gears a bit to talk about the pandemic and vaccine equity. Over the past two years, we've seen that's exacerbating existing inequities related to vaccine access. Um, Jackie, talk to us a little bit about more about the overall impact on vaccine coverage rates and what you're doing to address that. Sure. Um, well, not only do we have a, a vaccine uh, equity issue related to COVID-19, but the pandemic has impacted our routine immunization rates across the country. And this has a direct impact on the health of our mamas and our babies across the country. And so we feel like we need uh, an all hands approach to elevating routine immunization rates across the country, almost the same level of energy and effort that has gone into um, working across the public and private sector to identify vaccines and treatments related to COVID-19. Another thing I want to build on, um, Dr. Henderson mentioned the importance of listening and that listening is so critical, not only um, talking with people that are most impacted by the challenges, but going directly to where they are and where they're accessing health information. And this is an area where we see a lot of potential power related to digital connectivity uh, and the power of social media and where people are accessing health information online. And so our company is a proud uh, founding member of something called the Alliance for Advancing Health Online, which is working across uh, tech sectors and health sectors to identify the best practices around how we leverage social media and other online platforms for delivering health information. And we've actually leveraged this for some of our work in maternal health through a collaboration that we had with the Centers for Disease Control through a grant we made to the CDC Foundation where we supported a digital-only campaign uh, called Hear Her, focused on the recognition of maternal health warning signs and responding directly to some of what we heard from so many people across the country that they spoke up and mentioned that they were experiencing a symptom or they didn't feel quite right and, and they were dismissed. You know, Zakiba, we're coming to a close of this conversation. There's so much more to discuss, but I, you know, you remember when the COVID happened and the vaccines were rolling out, there was a lot of discussion among mothers about, should I get vaccinated? Should I get vaccinated? Not just for the COVID vaccine, but in general. Mm -hmm. so, so talk to us, you know, as we're coming to a close, how this impacts maternal health. What does the research show about the importance of pregnant women in getting vaccinated in general? Mm -hmm. Well, we do know that pregnant women are at increased risk for poor complications and poor outcomes from COVID. They're at increased risk not only for uh, increased admission to the hospital, being intubated, and ultimately also increased risk of death, but they also are at increased risk for pregnancy complications, um, babies being born too soon, preeclampsia, having bleeding problems, blood clots. And it's important for pregnant people to understand the importance of being vaccinated 
and that it protects them and their unborn child. Um, when we talk about the statistics around maternal deaths, um, we recently uh, saw the information released from CDC just a couple months ago that showed an increase in 2020. Our, uh, there were 754 women who died in 2019. In 2020, that increased to 861. And it's almost certain that those, that increase in deaths was largely due to increased deaths to COVID-19. And we don't even know what's gonna happen for 2021, right. but we can see that there were increased deaths during the uh, late summer and early fall for pregnant women. Over 300, uh, close to 300 women have already died. Um, pregnant women have died um, due to COVID-19 and over 32,000 have been admitted to the hospital admitted to the hospital, excuse me, have had COVID. And so it is important for pregnant people to understand that the vaccine is safe and that they are at increased risk for poor out, uh, outcomes and that the CDC and all of us recommend that whether you're planning to become pregnant, whether you are pregnant, whether you can become pregnant, that the vaccine is highly recommended to prevent um, COVID-19 and its complications. Yeah, and as Jackie said, those information is online if anybody's confused and really wants that, that real factual information. Um, well, you know, as we've discussed, policy, research, and especially these partnerships are really important because we need to address not just the patient, but the provider, the larger environment that contribute to our health. And that's able to kind of amplify the impact on creating a more equitable and healthy future for all of us, not just for moms and babies, but for all of us. Uh, Dr. Jakiba Henderson, Senior Vice President and Interim Chief Medical Health Officer, and medical and health officer at March of Dimes, and Jackie Caglia, director of learning communications and U.S. programs at Merck for Mothers. Thanks for joining us. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to the, to those just joining us virtually. I'm Yasmin Abu Talib, a health policy reporter here at the Post. My next guest joins us from the White House COVID-19 response team, whose focus is on the issues surrounding health equity. Dr. Cameron Webb, thank you so much for being with us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in our earlier discussion, we discussed that the White House just recognized this grim milestone of one million deaths in the, US, in the United States due to coronavirus. I want you to talk to us a little bit about the outcome of last week's COVID-19 summit. Uh, were there any concrete steps agreed upon that you think will make a significant difference in our ongoing fight against COVID? And how do you think it will make a difference? Well, I think last week's summit in so many ways was one of those important reminders that this pandemic is still going on. I mean, the fact that we still have to make that point plain uh, is it, it tells a lot about how much people are eager, how many people are eager to move on, but yet how critical it is that that we continue to focus on the tools and resources necessary to address this pandemic. And, and when you talk about it in the global context, that's truly the only context for describing a pandemic, right? When people talk about, you know, well, this is happening in other countries versus here, the fact of the matter is we are tied together in a single garment of destiny. So I think that that commitment that, that, that you know, from the summit that we were showing ongoing commitment to the rest of the world, but at the same time, uh, the calls to action. You know, the vice president spoke about, you know, the, the ongoing need to do a lot of work. We talked about the ongoing need for funding from Congress. There's a, an important part of the response in front of us, and I think we continue to make that point, including the dollars we'll need that are necessary to continue that global response. 
And to your point, every time we see cases rise in United Kingdom or South Africa, we <coughs> see something similar happen here. So That's right. That's right. And I think, it, again, it's, it's really critical that people understand that just because other things are in the news cycle, just because there are other crises facing the country and the world, and you know, my, my heart goes out to everybody in Buffalo right now, we can't act like that's not happening. But at the same time, we still have a pandemic. At the same time, we have the you know we've we've talked about these overlapping crises in the country over the last two years, and that doesn't mean we can take our eye off the ball with COVID. What's unique about now is that we have more tools today than ever before to address this crisis. Doesn't make it a non-crisis. It just means we're better prepared for it if we lean in. There's a little bit of news from the White House this morning, which is that the federal government is sending out another round of COVID-19 rapid tests to every household. This time, it, there are more available for each household. There's eight as opposed to four. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how that's part of the, the overall plan to deal with the, you know, the current increase in cases that we're seeing. Well, you know, if I have my druthers, people will be testing for COVID like they brush their teeth in the morning because I think it's, it's really important that if you wake up with symptoms, with a cough, a sore throat, a runny nose, that you don't have to go searching for a COVID test. You know, we're talking about equity here. If you go back to the earliest days of the pandemic, there were, there were huge haves and have-nots about who could get access to testing. And so the ability to, to deliver tests directly to somebody, I think that makes a big difference. And it's not lost on me that that doesn't solve all of the challenges, right? We can, we can deliver tests to residences. I think early on folks said, well, you know, what's eight tests, is that enough? And then it was, you know, four more, is, is that enough? And then finally, it's uh, now we're up to 16 tests per individual that we're sending from the federal government directly to an address. But I say, no, that's not enough. You know, the, the fact of the matter is if you're insured, you can also get it through your private insurance. You know, I think that eight tests per month per covered life, that, that helps make a difference. My seven-year-old son has gotten more than his fair share of, of COVID tests that we purchased <laughs> through our insurance. And so, you know, we just make sure in our home that we stay ready. And, and as I say, a lot of my community, you stay ready so you don't have to get ready. I think COVID tests are an important part of that, they're an important part of the equation, important part of keeping people safe. And so today's news is, is more good news, but it's also a signal to the American people, stay ready, because these tests, you can have them in your home, don't wait to get them until the day when you're trying to navigate some symptoms. You need them in your house on the ready when you need them. So President Biden formed a COVID equity task force shortly after taking office. That task force released a report in November and the recommendations included having a permanent health equity infrastructure in the White House. So I wanna know what changed in terms of the administration's policies or the design of the White House response as a result of that task force and have its, implement, have its, sorry, have its recommendations been implemented? Well, you know, that, that task force, I think, is, is one of the unsung heroes of the response. Uh, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith was leading that work, and, and it wasn't just people in government. This, these were leaders from community, from outside of government, coming together, spending their time to lend their expertise. They, they issued 55 final recommendations. And by the end of last year, we had begun action on over 80% of them already. You know, those 55 actions that the task force sent us now six months ago, we've spent these six Six months working closely with agency, agencies, working closely with offices, that's turned into now over 300 different actions that agencies are taking. And so our plan as a White House is to 
issue a report in the coming months about the work, you know, kind of what's come after that task force report. I think it, it did shine a really important light on what it means to truly center health equity. So there, there's a lot more to come on that. I think it's, it's critical that we make sure that folks know that that work didn't stop on November 10th when they transmitted the report. It continues every day. And, um, and in terms of kind of that permanent infrastructure, what that looks like, I think we continue to have that conversation because you've seen the president has talked about equity in a lot of contexts, certainly with regard to COVID, health more broadly, education, data, you know, there's so many different pieces across government. And so our ability to coordinate this equity lens, um, and just a note, I know there are a lot of folks in this room who probably have done equity work in your lifetime, and you know how frustrating it is that equity is siloed. It's, well, we've got the equity space, but then we have these other spaces. I think what the president has done pretty intentionally is said, well, how can we make equity a thread through all of government? infused in everything that we do. And that's you know our equitable data working group, that there are a lot of different pieces. And so I hear people say, the president talks about equity a lot. And I'm like, good, <laughs> that's certainly better than the alternative. And I think it's an important turning point, inflection point for our country. How do you think skepticism has impeded our ability to slow the spread of the pandemic? Of course, one of the biggest challenges throughout the pandemic and one that the White House is dealing with every day is the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation on all sorts of platforms. Yeah, I think it's had a tremendous impact. And it's tragic, really. I mean, I think so often you hear stories of folks who, you know, in following the myths and disinformation, not out of ignorance, but out of, you know, echo chambers. The fact that that's all they hear. You know, we do a lot of focus groups from, from our side. Um, it's what informs the way that we engage community. And you know, every time I'm sitting and observing these focus groups, and we usually do a couple dozen every few months, and every time I'm observing, I, I just want to stop the focus group and be like, no, that's not true. Like, that's, that's not at all true. But it's, it's so pervasive. I think it's had a tremendous impact. I think that um, you know, our approach to it has been, and I think we, we take our cues from a lot of community leaders on the ground, is we're gonna lead with our tenacity. You don't get tired of telling people what's real and what's true. You just have to keep doing it over and over again. So it has had a tremendous impact, you know, certainly in some communities more than others, but I think that as time has gone on, uh, the truth is, is bearing out. You know, the, the data around, you know, the deaths prevented from uh, from COVID, I mean, if you look, yes, we reached a million deaths, but it would instead of that one million, it would have been about three point two million without vaccines. Right, that's a tremendous number of deaths. So instead of if you know one person who's died from COVID, you would know three. You know, and similarly, of the million people who died, two hundred and fifty thousand could those those deaths could have been prevented with vaccines. So again, these are things. These are the parts of the story that we need to tell. Vaccines work, they're effective, uh, they're safe, and we have a tremendous amount of data on that. Um, you just can't get tired of telling people that. You have to do it over and over again. So it has an impact, but I think that we just have to continue to push. Well, we actually have an audience question about vaccines, and this is from Megan, who joins us today in our live audience. She asks, as Omicron subvariants continue to develop and circulate, is the federal government rethinking their strategic plan to address COVID-19, including investing in second-generation vaccines that offer broader, more durable protection against SARS-CoV-2 and its variants. Boosting every two to five months is not a plan, as in, in fact, detrimental to the overall vaccine policy for a number of diseases, including measles nationwide. 
Yeah, well, Megan, it's a great question. And I think that what I would say is that rethinking happened several months ago. When the National Pandemic Preparedness Plan came out, it had an eye toward variants. And, and in specific, knowing that there's always going to be a new variant coming our way, how do we get to a space where we're no longer just chasing our tail? And we know there's always the threat of a variant that can evade or escape our immunity. And then we're seeing and hearing about that now. People are following BA4 and BA5 very closely. You know, we, I think that's something that we're, we're really trained on because we know that if that becomes the dynamic where we have a variant that's, you know, our current level of immunity doesn't protect us, that's terrifying to a lot of folks. And so, yes, that's a huge part of our strategy today. Uh, of course, many of you probably heard that, that some of the pharmaceutical companies have described having bivalent vaccines. I know Moderna in particular has. Um, and so we're looking at that. But I'll tell you, we will not be first in line in the world to purchase those vaccines if we don't get the dollars from Congress. We can, we can continue to, to pass out the vaccines that we have. But this is why the ongoing response and the investment in the ongoing response is so critical because you know, we, the president's described this as a wartime effort. And I can't think of a wartime effort that I've seen in the history of this nation where we pulled the wartime response funding in the middle of the wartime effort. You know, it, it's so important that we say we're still in this. There are still hundreds of people dying each day, well over a thousand people in hospitals each day, countless cases because so many are being tested at home. And we know that this pandemic is still going strong. We're just better at navigating it doesn't change the fact that we're still fighting it. And so I, I think that, you know, absolutely agree. That's a huge part of our strategy moving forward is both our, our uh, surveillance, so we have a better sense of what's coming our way, our coordination around the world, um, but also, you know, the broader vaccination effort. Um, a lot of people, just a, a quick note, a lot of people have asked, well, when should people get that fourth boost or the second booster, fourth shot? And we know from the data that, yes, it does provide additional protection. You know, my parents are both over 65. They asked me, when should I get this shot? And, and I say, you get it now because you don't know what's coming your way. And even though there may be a new vaccine coming in the fall at some point in time and it may be better, who knows if you're going to make it to the fall. If you were to get COVID and you had waning effectiveness now, take the tools that are in front of you, take full advantage of them now because again, that's so important. So uh, I agree, it's not a strategy to vaccinate folks every, every couple of weeks or months, but I think that um, with the current state of the science and the tools that we have today, that's our option. We're continuing to invest in having better options. So I wanna, I wanna talk about the COVID funding for, for a few minutes because that is posing challenges on a number of fronts. So one is, you mentioned we're not gonna be first in line if you do not get that congressional funding. The White House requested $22.5 billion from Congress a few months ago. It looks like if they come to a deal, which is not certain, it'll be more around 10 or 10.5 billion. So what concessions do you have to make, including on whether you buy the, the next generation vaccines, the bivalent vaccines that Pfizer and Moderna have in trials right now, or tests or antivirals? Um, the, the tools we have are good. They're not necessarily a long-term strategy for dealing with this. So what sorts of decisions do you have to make given if you get the funding, it'll be less than half of what you requested, and even that's not certain? Well, it's a few things because, I mean, we've learned through this pandemic how to how to spread things thin because, you know, we, we've always been looking for additional resources. Here, I think part of what we're going to see is instead of being able to cover 
six months. It's going to cover a shorter duration of time. You know, we're going to have to pick and choose our spots. And those conversations are ongoing, you know, with state leaders, with local leaders, with, with scientists saying, well, what, are, what is our best bang for our buck? Our goal is saving lives through this. And I think that um, the reality is no matter what number Congress settles in on, it's not the end of what we'll need for COVID-19. And there are different moments in terms of political will that will arrive in the future, but it doesn't change the fact that we need to act now. So, so I think that you know, it is gonna force some difficult decisions. I'll, I'll give you a couple that are top of mind. Uh, we think about Evusheld, which is a preventive therapy uh, for immunocompromised individuals. We have some of it, we had to make a decision immediately about whether to purchase more. Um, I think that a lot more people can and will benefit from Evusheld, especially as people get more familiarity with it, but we're not gonna be able to purchase those additional ones without more dollars. Paxlovid, we're spreading it out all over the country. There's lots of availability. And so people think, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got plenty. 20 million courses, what, what we purchased. 20 million is not gonna be enough to meet the needs of the American population uh, in the months to come. So again, it's preparing for what's ahead, not necessarily talking about what we need today. And so, um, you know, you'd hate to see the COVID resources fall off a cliff. And I think that's where we say, well, how do we make sure that we really create a, you know, a longer slope on that if we only get $10 billion or something along those lines? How do we, you know, soften that fall while we continue to advocate for what we truly need? And I think on Paxlovid, we're seeing even if there's ample supply, there have been a lot of challenges in people actually being able to get it for, for a number of reasons. So there's money that also needs to go to the distribution and implementation of a plan to make sure people can actually access it, even if it's it's there on the shelves. Well, we're, we're talking equity here. And so Paxlovid and equity, it's a huge challenge. I always tell people there are six steps from when you first have COVID symptoms and you get that pill, right? You have to know you've got symptoms. You have to get a test. You have to get a result. You have to see a prescriber. You have to get a prescription. You have to fill a prescription. And that's why we created the test to treat sites to try to co-locate that. But, you know, we're piggybacking off of infrastructure that quite frankly is built for systemic inequality is built in this notion of structural racism. And so, no, we don't have, you know, minute clinics in some of the hardest hit, highest risk communities because it doesn't create the margin for those companies to derive the greatest benefit. So, you know, yes, we can use some of that infrastructure to deliver the tools that we need, but we also need uh, to, to, you know, piggyback off the infrastructure for federally qualified health centers. And right now we've got 1,400 across the country, 13,000 sites but only a couple hundred are test-to-treat sites. And so we push every day to try to get more and more engaged in that space. Part of the reason why federally qualified health centers are not you know, jumping or chomping at the bit to be Paxlovid prescribers is because they're stretched absolutely thin. They've been testing, they've been doing the vaccinations, their staff has been decimated for so many reasons. You, know, you think about all of what's truly happened in this pandemic is it's eroding the very infrastructure that was, you know, patching together the needs and concerns of the hardest hit communities. And so that's why when we talk about additional resources that are needed, sure, there's the core COVID response needs, but let's be real, the underlying infrastructure has been exploited by this virus time and time again, and we're, you know, we're still gonna be swimming upstream unless we start to address that underlying infrastructure. I think there are some key ideas in there, the president's infrastructure plan. I think there's a lot more work to do, but I think that, you know, this is, this is the challenge of equity, right? We're, we're doing this work in a terribly you know, inadequate environment. Well, we have a couple minutes left and I, I, we can't have a whole conversation about equity without talking about global vaccinations. So the United States has led an aggressive effort to provide vaccines to some of the poorest nations in the world. 
global vaccine efforts on the whole have fallen pretty far short of the goals that were laid out. And now we've got this added challenge because in talking about the congressional funding with this stripped down uh, uh, agreement that lawmakers are talking about, there is actually no money for, for global efforts. So what do you do in the face of these obstacles and is the White House going to be able to continue to meet its global commitments if it doesn't get that funding? You know, I think the, the lack of ongoing funding is certainly going to be a challenge. It's the reason why we advocate for it so strongly. And, you know, I want to lift up the work that's been done, right? Over 530 million doses of vaccines been distributed around the world, over 114 countries. You know, that, that's a huge, uh, you know, fulfillment of a commitment. Our goal is 1.2 billion. We're, we're on our way, right? We've built an infrastructure to distribute vaccine across the world. In a lot of instances, countries are telling us, like, we don't, we don't need any more right now. You know, but I think there's still so much more work to do. It's not just about getting vaccines to people or getting vaccines to countries. It's about the infrastructure within those countries, supporting the public health apparatus. There are a lot of different components that turn vaccines into vaccinations. And I think that the ongoing resources are the key to that. If we don't turn vaccines into vaccinations, we can pass out however many we want. We're not going to curb this pandemic, right? And I think that's going to be really a key, a key factor in the weeks and months to come. And we're keeping our eye on what's happening around the world there's still a critical need to support you know, the public health apparatus in a lot of different places. And so you know, our investment, our engagement with COVAX remains really important, but, but again, there's a lot more to do. I wanna end on an uplifting note. We've got about a minute left. So what are some success stories you've seen that the federal government and all of us can learn from? Well, you know, I'll, I'll give the success story of the vaccination effort. You know, I, I tell folks all the time, you know, in terms of primary series, when we first started, people thought it would be impossible to get a majority of folks to do anything. And when you talk about equity specifically, uh, to do it at equitable levels, uh, I, I joke, you can't get 80% of folks to eat ice cream. You know, it's too much lactose intolerance out there. But I think that, you, you know, in this vaccination effort, you know, when you look at, you know, our survey data from the National Immunization Survey, 85% of black adults have their primary series, 85% of white adults, 88, 89% of Latino adults. Those are numbers that are unfathomable to people if they went back two years and you said, this is what we're going to achieve. So what it tells us is equity is possible. And so it's not an aspirational goal. It is an operational necessity. And so when you, when you frame it like that and you show the success, you know, it's transformative when you tell communities, 85% of folks from your community have been vaccinated. That last 15% feel left out, right? So I think it's, it's really important for us to tell those stories and then to say, hey, on boosters, let's do it again. For kids, let's do it again. You know, for the, all the resources and tools that people need, we can do this and we can do it equitably. I think that's gonna be the story of this pandemic. And I think community members and leaders are the reason why we've done that. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, but thank you, Dr. Cameron Webb, so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I am Francis Dietzel as a senior writer here at the Washington Post. I am delighted to be joined here by a man who needs few introductions, surgeon, author, and now USAID's assistant administrator for global health 
Atul Gawandi, very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to be here. Well, I want to start with a challenge. Um, we learned recently that the Biden administration had failed to secure $5 billion, as we heard in the last segment. How, and I know you made very impassioned pleas for that funding. How does it hurt our response globally to the pandemic? Well, I haven't given up yet, and neither has the Biden administration, but it is going to be extremely damaging if we uh, do not have funding to continue past the summer in our global uh, COVID-19 work. Um, stopping funding of COVID-19 will be damaging on a number of fronts. So first you have to think about how much we've accomplished. We have had a historic global vaccination campaign that has reached not just the highest income countries in the world, but also the upper middle income and lower middle income countries to the point that even in Latin America, we're closing in at 80% uh, fully vaccinated in those populations. Say that again, 80%. 80% so in there. Impressive number. On the other hand, less than 1% of vaccines of the 10 billion vaccines that have gone out have reached the low income countries. So if you look at Africa uh, as a continent, the vaccination rate, the full vaccination rate is just 16%. And that gap means that the variants that continue to roll and surge around the world. We have been successful in disconnecting cases from deaths so that we can, we've had surges of cases, mm -hmm. but the surges of deaths have been much lower. And, we're, uh, and we have other tools in our arsenal like antiviral pills and, and rapid tests. And those simply have not reached those parts of the world. That is damaging because it's gonna be harmful for health. It's damaging because it disrupts our supply chains. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the world is interconnected. The basic ingredients of everything from our own drugs to what we needed for our computers goes through Africa and other parts of the world that are affected. And so our supply chain shut down, inflation happens, and then our variants come out of those parts of the world. And every variant has come from abroad. Those surges have hurt us here at home. And so it is, I would argue, a uh, an a health, health mistake, an economic mistake, an ethical mistake. It's also a geopolitical security mistake of epic proportions. How have we failed to get those messages across? I've heard other people in global health, um, David Milliman, make the same point that this is not just a health issue, it's a national security and economic issue. Where has the messaging gone wrong on a global terms? Um, unfortunately, a lot of it has been politicized, right? We, we, some degree of, uh, of difficulty in moving public health messages is there in every part of the world. But we have, significant, we have a few parts of the world, and unfortunately our country is one of them, where, where, we have, uh, where it's become a source of political divide. Mm -hmm. I wanna point out the ways, though, that it has not been a source of political divide here. And, and, and Cameron, earlier in the earlier segment, alluded to it. You know, over the age of 65, we're at well over 95% vaccination, regardless of political party. Regardless of, uh, and also we've done, you know, extraordinary job um, uh, addressing the equity gap uh, by race and by even geography. Um, so it is possible to work across these divides. It is this virus is built to allow for exploitation along political lines, because um, the deaths are concentrated in people over 50. But the transmission is concentrated in people under 50. Right. It is invisible. And so for, um, for the population, we need to come on board with 
um, bringing vaccination. Uh, it can be exploited. It's exploited in Tanzania, where we had a president who denied um, uh, the existence of COVID, opposed vaccines in a way we didn't have in this country, and the new and then died of COVID. <laughs> And the new president now in, she is um, uh, trying to move an entire country. And that is very difficult to do when you start behind the eight ball that way. Uh, We're a year into, a little over a year into a presidency where we have really turned down the heat on, on this and we've made substantial progress. And I'm thrilled to see that when we've had opportunities like rapid tests and antiviral pills, that same politicization isn't occurring. So vaccination rates have dropped here and around many other parts of the world. And I want to ask you a little bit more about whether we need a different kind of vaccine. I mean, here I just got my second um, booster. I'm sure you're in the same position and many other people here. That's because the, the efficacy wanes. What do we need to vaccinate the world? Can we manage a, a reboosting program like this? Yes, well, the reality is for the highest risk people, we not only have to make sure that the primary series gets out there, mm. but that we are also able to get boosters to the highest risk people. In, uh, we know that people with um, immunocompromised uh, conditions like HIV AIDS, those are the people in whom infections of COVID can become chronic and you develop mutants, mutations in those mm. people and that there's particularly high risk that those folks generate the variants that cause um, evasion of vaccines or of our treatments. And so um, uh, getting full vaccination and boosting to those populations is absolutely critical. And we're, we're not doing that in the low income world. Right. And so that's critical. Um, but I would say that, uh, yes, that is the science that we're stuck with, is that we, are, we have vaccines that are effective, it is, um, but seem to need to be boosted. I will point out that we have had um, continued remarkable effectiveness in preventing deaths right. and severe Serious. and critical hospitalizations, right? ICU admissions. And, um, and so achieving immunity uh, through vaccination uh, for the primary series at a minimum, that will get us substantial progress in protecting against the worst outcomes of the disease. So I want to read to you a statement that the Indonesian president made at the White House summit. He said, at the global level, all countries, big or small, rich or poor, must have equal access to health solutions. So what are the consequences if we can't get that sort of equality? You've touched on that, but go a little deeper into what it means if we get these great differentiations and particularly the poor nations left out. Well, understand that has been our world before COVID, right? We That's have generated, in the last century, we have learned how to have an arsenal of uh, treatments, diagnostics, tests, and, and, uh, and, and public health capabilities that have made it so part of our population in the world can count on having a life expectancy of greater than 80 years. Mm. What, I, uh, what I would point out is that even within our own country, we have not uh, been able to offer everybody equal access to that life expectancy and quality of health. And I think it is a gener I've argued this is humankind's most ambitious endeavor to deploy what are now um, 6,000 drugs, 4,000 medical and surgical procedures, plus thousands of public health interventions, mm. town by town to every person alive, while supporting our economic capabilities and, and schools and everything else. We are all learning to do that. 
COVID to me was an incredibly optimistic sign because the first time we said, we have a breakthrough and we need to see it reach the rest of the world sooner than the usual 25 to 50 years. We need it to happen now and we, may, we are making it happen in the course of so far about nine months we deployed half a billion vaccines which is astonishing. Right. I am worried that the rapid tests have not reached the low income world, anything like we have here. We take it for granted. You can't get them in, most, in, uh, in, in many low income countries. And our new antiviral medications, which are uh, effective for the unvaccinated, have a 90% protection against death or hospitalization. That has also not rolled out in the world. In the recent summit, we committed, even though Congress hasn't passed money, we have reallocated, and it's a tiny amount of money, $20 million, but we leverage that to get um, uh, organizations like the Global Fund Unidaid to match with well over $100 million, which means that we have about 20 countries, up to 20 countries in the world, that we can begin rolling out, uh, low-income countries where we can begin rolling out those rapid tests and, and uh, antivirals. We'll get generic manufacturers online. We also announced getting the price down to, to under $25 a course with generic manufacturers if enough orders come in. We need to put in the big orders that get the production lines moving and make it fully available in the world, and that's what we need to have um, the, uh, the, the congressional funding for. But I'd say there are reasons for optimism that, to me, COVID showed us, showed the world that we could be, it's not acceptable to have breakthroughs that are not available to the whole world. Right, so talk a little bit more about those innovations. I'm fascinated. I know you had a very high penetration rate, I think, of vaccines in Indonesia, and then you've been deploying AI in some other parts of the world to combat misinformation. Talk a little bit more about those innovations and how you've developed them on the spur, spur of the moment to combat this challenge. Yeah, I mean, the, um, a couple of critical things. It's the same stuff we've been doing here. <laughs> <laughs> right, the, okay. The, you know, on the but same... On uh, you know, it wasn't enough to just generate the vaccines. We had to pour substantial amounts of resources in to make it sh make sure that we could reach those rural populations from Panola, Alabama to West Virginia to, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest. I mean, talking to the teams and how they got it out, you know, two-thirds of Alaska is not connected by roads, and they could get to uh, Inuit populations and others in the same ways. And we, uh, for low-income countries, they don't have those resources. We have deployed $1.7 billion dollars in support at USAID to, to countries ranging, including ones like Indonesia, um, where in Indonesia, for example, it was specifically, we, we said, we will support you to reach your hardest to reach places, and that meant workers, you know, paying staff salaries, being able to um, get vehicles um, that could, that could right. traverse, you know, you need boats, you need, you need four-wheel drive vehicles, you need other things to get to, to difficult to reach populations, just like we had to in Alaska. And, uh, and, and that allowed that Indonesia to reach very high rates of vaccination. We are working on, we've, we're currently supporting 11 of the most under-vaccinated high potential countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. We found that campaigns of four to 10 weeks, including work on misinformation, and, and, uh, but, but heavily on just get, get out to the hard to reach places, secure the cold chain, make sure the pieces in the puzzle come together we're doubling and tripling vaccination rates. Uganda uh, has now reached 70% of their adult population with at least one dose of vaccine. And, and this can be done, but we need 
we need to bring resources to bear that they don't have. So I can't resist asking you. I, during my reporting, I've heard from some experts in public health saying there are lessons from overseas that we need to bring back here. Have you seen them, um, and specifically one or two, where global vaccination has worked, for example, through UNICEF or something, and we need to bring those stra strategies back to this country? Well, you know, because we had it first, I'd say, in the vaccination space, there are a couple of things. Like, I'm really struck, for example, in Cote d'Ivoire, there, there is a program that we built was a rapid disinformation um, uh, uh, tool. And, and, you know, people have touted the AI stuff. But actually, what I love about it is how mundane it is. It is a network of people who tell you the rumors in their community, send in the rumors, and immediately allow for um, the central agencies to be able to offer uh, replies. So as soon as they found out that in certain communities there was a belief going around that this vaccine was was aimed to um, uh, make uh, make people infertile, um, we could get trusted uh, parties, often doctors, um, to help negate those rumors and and keep them from uh, getting hold, and you know making sure it doesn't become part of the political. Uh, landscape. And those kinds of effects, I think, are ones that um, uh, I wish we could use here. <laughs> you have spoken um, domestically about the push and pull between science and politics. And of course, public health belongs in a little bit of both of those fields. How has that, has the tension between those two affected our global response? Well, there's some appropriate distance between science and politics, right? right. Science can only give you the facts. It can't tell you what to value. We had a debate in this country in the early 1980s when we had a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, and we could give you the facts that raising the speed limit would you know, increase deaths by 5,000 or, or so more deaths per year. And we said, it's just too damn slow. <laughs> and we increased our speed limit to 65. And then we went to work on airbags and on all of those other um, passive restraint approaches. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to COVID. We know the facts and need people to be dealing in the world with facts. So if here's the arsenal that helps, here's what works. And here's, you know, I see many of you in masks. You know, masks are effective in reducing transmission. And, uh, and that making our choices about what risks we're willing to take. You know, we also know the value of keeping the schools open. We know the value of doing a variety of other things. What's frustrating is not, not using the arsenal of tools we have to allow people to return to normal life. You know, I came into the Washington Post and, and here you have rapid tests available to any employee as you come in. And Every you, day. And you can have, you know, the, at the State of the Union, the entire Congress was able to be unmasked because everybody was tested before the State of the Union, right. we can have events and, um, and activities that return us to normal life, um, uh, but use the tools that we have available. Mm -hmm. And I think that is true for the entire world. Um, it is, uh, we can increasingly decouple the fact of cases and start turning this into an endemic respiratory illness that, um, uh, that does not have to result in overwhelming our hospitals, in having a surge of deaths. We can reach a point where it starts to be that way. We also have to be prepared for the appearance of variants that, that might set us back. And, right. uh, and we're, without funding, we're not able to do those things. So I'd love to ask you an audience question. We've had one from, let's see, this is Rachel in New Jersey, 
who asks, how do we ensure continued support for developing countries that have built up their public health infrastructure during COVID-19 once the pandemic's over? Well, so there's a couple things. First is understand we have approached this, um, the support we're giving to countries in ways that are intentionally building that capacity uh, for a lasting effect on the system. And I'll give you a few examples. Number one is, um, uh, we are bringing, we're, we're now the leading supporter of building oxygen capacity around the world. Absolutely critical for a respiratory illness that we have oxygen. And, and you saw, the hor saw, saw many of the horrifying images from India when you had many places that simply ran out of oxygen. And, um, uh, and bringing oxygen capacity and doing it in ways that is building a lasting system and an ecosystem that keeps oxygen flowing um, and lowers the costs, et cetera, is also then there to help address the biggest killer of children under five, which is childhood pneumonia, able to address adult uh, respiratory illnesses, makes for safer birth and safer surgery. Mm -hmm. It is a dramatic effect on the system. We have a number of different ways that are like that. So you can point to our uh, health information tools now um, around the world and in low-income countries where uh, countries are tracking their vaccination rates and their case and, and disease rates in, a, in an almost real-time basis. Extending those tools and enabling that for the range of public health illnesses is absolutely critical. There's been training of, of, um, of uh, frontline workers. There's been the development of whole new platforms for vaccination, like using pharmacies for vaccination, mm -hmm. uh, mobilizing uh, school-based vaccinations. And those can be applied to uh, continuing onward uh, HPV vaccines, which are reducing cervical cancer all over the world critically deployed through school vaccinations. And now that we, we have that platform, that's really important. There are adult uh, vaccinations like hepatitis B vaccine, pneumococcus. Those things, I would argue, are opportunities now that more and more of these systems have been built, not to mention cold chains, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot, I think, that can be better as we recover in the, in the months and years to come. I want to ask you about a couple of countries, very different ones. Um, Ukraine and China. <laughs> Ukraine, we've got this huge dislocation of people. I think only 35% vaccination, first vaccination. Um, what's the potential for them to overwhelm um, the hospital systems of the countries they're moving into? Well, there's a few things. Number one is that across, many have, of course, uh, displaced to the West. And they're going to countries that have quite robust um, vaccination right. systems and uh, health capabilities. I was just in Poland a couple of weeks ago coordinating our Ukraine health response. And what Poland, for example, is doing is extraordinary because they are in, they're, uh, offering entry, full membership into their health system, offering vaccination and, um, uh, and treatment capabilities. And so that's really important. Inside Ukraine, there's really three different areas. There are the areas under siege, and in the west, I'm sorry, in the east, in particular in the south, the destruction of the health systems um, by the Russian government is uh, just devastating. I mean, you know, out of one survey of over 800 facilities found that 400 had been rendered non-functional either due to being destroyed or their, uh, or their staff having been caused leaving. So there's a, there's a near collapse of health on, in that part of the world. But in the newly liberated areas and in the north and the, and the, and the west, um, you have a system that is 
really standing up on its, uh, on its two feet. The Ministry of Health has been extraordinary, handling large volumes of people and need support. Uh, I, you know, the, uh, the passing of the Ukraine supplement is absolutely critical. Um, uh, and part of that is also dealing with managing their public health needs as well. I'm afraid we're going to have to finish after that one. We're running out of time, so China will be the next time I get to speak to you. Oh, there we go. And, and <laughs> so, Dr. Ashokawande, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a huge pleasure and very, very informative. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.